All right. Well, Jonathan, I was listening to that talk and Locke's idea of the state of nature and of cities hypothetically coming into being really struck me uh, because that's one of the really exciting things about working in crypto is you can actually see the state of nature in play and you can see uh, new digital cities coming into being uh, online. And so I'd be happy to chat about that part of it more at the end. Um, but crypto is the state of nature because law is enforced through contracts and cryptographic power rather than appeal to a higher third party or separate power. So last year, uh, what I talked about at this forum was Bitcoin and its potential role as an alternate money. So we define money, and I'll just do a quick synopsis here, as a game that exists foremost inside the minds of those playing the game. And the key questions about the game of money are, is the game open? Is it fair? And is it predictable? We looked at alternate monies, and there have been some crazy forms of money out there, from stones with holes carved in the middle of them, to precious metals, to uh, fiat currencies, which may be the craziest embodiment of money yet, uh, like the petrodollar. And we forecast a showdown between central bank digital currencies and Bitcoin. Not surprisingly, I think a world in which Bitcoin wins is far better than a world in which central bank digital currencies win. But there was another aspect of this that I wanted to cover and didn't get to. And so I've had a, about a year to think about this. Uh, and so we're going to get a little bit deeper down the crypto rabbit hole. So consider yourselves forewarned. Uh, I want to cover three main, point, three main points. One, central bank digital currencies would reduce our freedom, sure. But people subject to the Fed, and that's you and I, we are already living in a, in a state of bondage. Two, Bitcoin has critical flaws. And three, I want to sketch an alternative means of digital currency and sort of let you into the kitchen as some of these ideas are brewing uh, before they're really instantiated in public. So first, life under the Fed cannot be free. So the past two years have probably driven this point home more than anything I can say, but let's do a quick recap. Uh, seven people set up the economic policy for the entire world at this point. What is it based on? It's based on their own hubris, and it's based on political pressure. And so they're really bad at it. Let's point out a couple highlights. Uh, the 10-year Treasury note, which should be like the safest investment vehicle in the entire world, uh, has gone from 1.6 to 4.2% over the past two years. Uh, if you think back to the last year, performance of this investment vehicle was that bad. It was 1788. And the reason it was that bad then was that uh, we formed a new government and ratified the Constitution. So things were a little rocky. Uh, I don't think we have a good excuse this time. Uh, and so if you think about what that does to you and I, it's like our parents, pension funds, conservative people, all of their savings or much of it was destroyed by that action. Right? So how do you live and plan in a society where an unaccountable board of seven people can do that to you? Another example is mortgage rates. I mean, we've all seen this, right? They started at 5% in 2018. They were down to 2.7% in 2020. And they're back up to 7% this year. So we went from the hottest housing market in the history of the world uh, to this year, in the past couple months, the Fed pouring ice water all over it. So the problem here uh, is that the Fed has been consistently wrong. Right? If Jerome Powell was an angel, uh, we wouldn't have this issue. An angel would surely be able to govern the US's and the world's monetary policy with some judicious actions. So I, I want to highlight also that they don't know what they're doing in their own words. So this is from a statement uh, that Jerome Powell gave this week 
uh, at the last FOMC meeting. Three quotes. One, well, I think I'm pleased that we have moved as fast as we have. I don't think we've over-tightened. Okay, so he's happy with himself. Uh, two, we're now 18 months into this episode of high inflation, and we don't have a clearly identified scientific way of understanding at what point inflation becomes entrenched. So in other words, there is no rule book he can follow. He's making this up as he goes. Uh, and next, so he's proud of himself. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and trying to make good decisions from a risk management standpoint, remembering, of course, that if we were to over-tighten, we could then use our tools strongly to support the economy. So he's also confident that given their past several years of horrible mistakes, that he can just fix things uh, and turn them around. Now, so like right now, as we speak, the Fed is currently walking into the middle of a gigantic policy error, which is likely to cause a large recession. Okay? Uh, and so that's a problem for us, and it's a problem for the rest of the world, because as the expression goes, when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Right? So this is not a way to have an international monetary standard. So last time we talked about Bitcoin, and I know that I'll get heckled at the end of this with the questions for this next part. Um, but Bitcoin's not a panacea either. Of any digital asset in existence, Bitcoin does have the highest probability of becoming a global, a global reserve asset. Uh, it is the best game of money we have, even if it's actually more like a gold or even a call option on a future potential gold than it is cash, like a greenback, the US dollar bill today. But today, uh, we're going to bury Bitcoin, not praise it. So here are two heresies to consider. Uh, one, guaranteed volatility. So most of us have seen Econ 101 supply and demand curves, right? As prices on something goes up, the supply increases because it becomes more profitable to make and sell that good. Sellers want to sell you more. On the other side, as price goes down, uh, buyers become willing to buy more because it's a better deal. And so the classic uh, Econ 101 graph shows supply curve and demand curve crossing. So the blessing and the curse here of Bitcoin is that it has a fixed issuance schedule. Bitcoin miners can expand or shut down, but they cannot change the average rate at which Bitcoin is mined. Now, on the demand side of a supply and demand curve, like one of the things that goes into demand for any good is human emotion. Right? There are business cycles. There's fear. There's greed. Uh, things like this especially affect demand for the quantities of money, because money is like that good that we use to achieve and transact in all other goods. So if the demand for Bitcoin is guaranteed to fluctuate, and the supply of Bitcoin cannot be changed, in that sense, it has a perfectly inelastic supply curve. By definition, Bitcoin must retain price volatility. Now, a lot of proponents uh, like, believe that if it were adopted as a global reserve currency, uh, that volatility would go away. But if you look at the history of it, the volatility of Bitcoin from inception has remained roughly constant the entire time. And so there's not really any good theoretical reason to believe that that volatility would go away. And you can't really base uh, like a mortgage or long-term contracts or things like that, where you want to have these free contracts between these parties on a volatile underlying currency. It just, like a, a mortgage built on Bitcoin would be a terrible idea for one or both of the parties, certainly. The last issue here, uh, is what I'd call the falling security budget. Now, this one is like a well-known issue with Bitcoin, and we don't have to go too much into the details here. But essentially, Bitcoin pays for a digital standing army in the form of miners uh, who are expending electricity to defend each block. 
And the problem with fielding a standing army, if you're a government, is that those mouths are expensive. And so, you, you know, it's like the game of risk, right? I have uh, 10 soldiers on Kamchatka, you have 12, I'm probably going to lose to you. Like, you need to have a standing army that's bigger at all times than your attackers. And so in this case, the attackers are bit, for Bitcoin are parties who use mining power to generate blocks that aren't useful to the rest of the network. So happy to go into the details on this if you have Q&A on this. But the problem with fielding a standing army this way is that you're paying ongoing security costs continually. Now, how do we, where does the money come from to pay for those costs? It's the block reward. So right now, uh, let's see, it's like 6.25 Bitcoin is being created by, per block. In 2030, it's going to go down to 1.5 Bitcoin per block. And so basically, the budget that the Bitcoin civilization has to pay for its army is programmatically guaranteed to go down over time. Uh, and so the kind of hand-wavy solution here is that a fee market is going to take place uh, of this block reward, where, hey, as Bitcoin gets adopted by the world as the global reserve currency, the number of parties transacting in this thing day to day is going to go up significantly, uh, and therefore we'll have a healthy fee market. Fee market. The problem is uh, a guy named Paul Stork has done some amazing research on this. Uh, if you look at the Bitcoin fee market over time, I checked today, uh, a transaction in Bitcoin will cost you about $1.30, and it's been that way up and down, but kind of average for about five years. So the fee market in Bitcoin is not going up. Uh, is the, like the amount of security that you get per transaction in Bitcoin from mining, I believe, is about $100 or so of energy being spent. So if you, if you do a transaction in Bitcoin, you get, for that transaction, $100 of economic security. Uh, the fee market right now is only providing $1. So there's just two orders of magnitude difference here. Like, this is not a problem yet, but it's going to be a problem for Bitcoin in a couple decades, and nobody really has a solution. So I want to sketch out an alternative form of solution here that I'd call crypto-localism. So what do we want out of a money, after all? We want it to be a unit of account, a store of value, and a medium of exchange. Okay? The reason that we want it to be crypto is that digital assets are much better to transact in the modern economy than anything like gold or paper. Right? All of our payments that we do all day long the vast majority of them, for all of us here, I'm certain, are digital. Right? We're not going to go back to gold. And the reason it needs to be uh, cryptographic instead of a centrally issued instrument is that we've seen the problem with these fiat instruments issued by central banks and trusted parties is that this trust is universally uh, misused. It's abused. And finally, crypto is the best way we can get to get privacy. Now, the localism half of this is really what's distinct from Bitcoin is, I'm trying to think how deep to go here, okay. When you have a money, you care about the stability of that money with respect to what, right? In a well-functioning society, it should be those goods and services near you that you use. Right. And so the current situation we have right now, where the entire world is getting disrupted because of economic policy indicators in the United States, is totally unacceptable. It doesn't make any sense. So if you have a set of cryptographic currencies that blanket the globe and that are defined locally, what you can do is you can build a digital central bank in each region where the economic policy in that local currency 
is determined rather than by an unaccountable Ford, uh, federal board of governors, but instead by purely algorithmic means. So like, I actually think that this is probably the next form of cryptographic currency that we're going to see as a competitor to Bitcoin and as a potential money for the future is a set of local currencies that are tracking the economic conditions in each of the regions that they populate around the world that are accountable to the local populaces there, that are tracking the economic conditions and the flow of currency in and out, uh, and that do a much better job of supporting local flourishing of people. Because localism isn't just a principle for money. It's a principle for almost every form of sound governance out there. Right? I think like, that's one of the key libertarian trends that I see and that I follow, is that the smaller the scale of government, the more likely it is to be accountable and responsive to the people it governs. As a general principle, that's where we need to go, and we clearly need to do the same thing for our money. So. Thanks.